Hi friends, I am your host Elle and welcome back to another week here at Chilled to the Bone. Today, I want to talk about two separate cases about two little girls. They happened eight years apart in two different cities in Florida and are both unsolved. Florida is actually one of the states with the most serial killers, actually ranked as third with California and Texas as first and second. So while I am covering two cases today, there were a lot of other cases I could have added to this episode. They all deserve to have their stories told, so I might do a part two of cold cases in Florida. Today, I have chosen to talk about Regina Armstrong and Jennifer Odom. First, I'm going to talk about Regina May Armstrong. Regina was born on March 16, 1979 to parents Donna and Bob Armstrong and big sister Christina. In the summer of 1979, Regina was six years old and had just finished kindergarten. She loved spending time outside, climbing trees and catching bugs, being what some might describe as a tomboy. But she also liked to dress up. Her father, Bob, has said about her, put her in a dress and a pair of shoes and she would try and act like a lady. So she seemed like a well-rounded little girl. Bob also said that for such a little girl, she loved to eat, with cherries being one of her favorites and remembers that she could eat as much as any adult. Both Donna and Bob worked, with Donna being in charge of the cafeteria at a nearby college and Bob working at a water treatment company. So during the summer, while the girls were out of school, they would spend the work days at a babysitter's house. This is a pretty normal situation for a lot of families, and I remember one summer, my piano teacher watched my younger sister and I a couple days a week. My mom worked from home, but it was a lot easier for her to get things done without two little girls in her hair all day, so I can relate to the Armstrong girls spending summers with a babysitter. On June 18, 1985, Bob dropped his two girls off at the babysitter's apartment. He hugged each girl goodbye. Regina told him, Daddy, I love you. I'll see you tonight, and ran inside with her big sister, Christina. Christina, Regina, and their babysitter's son or brother, depending on the source, would all play together, and on this day after lunch, they decided to head outside to enjoy the nice summer day. While the three were playing, they were interrupted by a strange man coming up to talk to them, and then he left. But he decided to come back. This time, the man asked Regina to go with him to pick up his grandkids and asked Christina and the boy to watch an apartment that he claimed was his and his wife's. He told the kids that if they watched his apartment for him, he would give them each $2, which is about $5 today. As a kid, that's good money, so of course they agreed. Christina began to grow uneasy as the minutes ticked by without the man and her sister's return. 
Christina had recently had the stranger danger talk at school, and she realized her sister might be in danger. So, as children are taught to do, she ran to an adult for help. Christina told her babysitter all that had happened, with the strange man taking her sister. For whatever reason, the babysitter did not take Christina seriously. Instead of calling the police or looking for six-year-old Regina, the babysitter locked the door, locking Christina outside. I have a lot of thoughts on this babysitter, but I'm not going to go into them because online a lot of people share their thoughts and none of them are kind as to be expected, but I don't want to be another person throwing hatred out there for her. I assume that this decision must haunt her every single day, so I'm not going to add out there. I did see a post about this case on Reddit, though, and a user who says they are Christina said that her entire family hates this woman, and I cannot blame them for that because if I were in their shoes, I would probably feel the same way. So at this point, Christina is locked outside not knowing what else to do. In 2010, she is quoted in the Orlando Sentinel as saying, I was so scared. I didn't know what to do or who to call. I was just shaken. I didn't know if I was going to be in trouble or what was going to happen. Two hours later, yes, two hours later, when the babysitter's boyfriend and other brother came to the apartment, the police were finally called. Christina told police all that had happened and described the man to them. She said he was in blue jeans and a plaid shirt. She remembered that he had some gray hair, stubble, a cut on his upper lip, and was missing some teeth. She also remembered how he smelled. He smelled oily, like he worked for a mechanic or on cars. She also remembered smelling alcohol on him. Once police were finally called, they began searching right away, bringing bloodhounds in to track the little girl. This led to the largest manhunt in Orlando's history at the time. Police were going door to door asking if anybody had seen Regina. Officers on horseback searched the woods. Helicopters searched from above. Days later, around a hundred naval officers came to aid in the search. Unfortunately, nothing was found. Police got a sketch of the man based off Christina's description. After seeing the news, a young girl in Cocoa Beach, which is an hour east of Orlando, told her father that that same man had tried to abduct her just days earlier. She said a man had climbed through her bedroom window and attempted to take her. She shared the room with her sister, who awoke and screamed at the sight of the strange man in her room. The man then escaped back out the window he had entered the house through. Eleven days before Regina went missing, a nine-year-old girl was grabbed while walking home from school. She was sexually assaulted and then dropped off in St. Augustine, which is about two hours north of Orlando. Police wondered if all of these incidents were done by the same man. Right away, police received thousands of tips, so many they needed volunteers to help take down all of the information. Some of the calls were from psychics. Police even investigated these leads, not wanting to leave any stone left unturned. One of these psychics led police to human remains. But it was easy to see these could not belong to Regina and were identified as belonging to a man who had gone missing two years before. 
months passed without a sign of Regina or her abductor. Then, in August, reports of a man matching the suspect's description were seen with a young girl matching Regina's descriptions, 2,500 miles away in Los Angeles. People described this little girl as acting scared and looking dirty. One man said he saw them on the bus, saying the guy kept pulling the girl close to him and she seemed frightened. Witnesses said the man even had a scar on his lip where Christina had previously seen a sore seven weeks earlier. Police flew out with Regina's parents, hoping this would lead to a reunion between the girl and her family. Police were going door to door looking for this man and the girl. When they finally met up with the girl and the possible suspect, one of the police said, it was remarkable how much this child looked like Regina. But it was just another little girl living with her natural father. Police said this man looked exactly like the man in the composite drawing. Everybody left disappointed. That same month, a little girl was dropped off at an apartment building being left with a security guard. The little girl told the security guard and his wife that she was Regina Armstrong. The wife called police right away. Police arrived and questioned the little girl. She had a lot of knowledge of Regina's disappearance and did look similar to Regina. Police even fingerprinted this girl, but they did not match Regina's prints. This mystery girl's father was tracked down. He had been the one to leave her at that apartment complex. Police questioned the father, unsure if he played a role in his daughter's false claims about her identity. This little girl turned out to be only four years old and was later turned over to the state's Department of Health and Rehabilitative Services. There were many other reports of seeing Regina, but none of these little girls were the one that the entire country seemed to be searching for. Self-proclaimed psychic Todd McBride, who was a custodian at a university in New York, decided he could help. He led Donna and Bob Armstrong on a search around the woods of Lake Jessup in Florida. They searched for 10 hours and found nothing. Two years later, in September of 1987, in Oviedo, Florida, 20 minutes northeast of Orlando, a construction worker found a sundress in a child's skull. He called police who collected the evidence. The Oviedo police somehow did not connect this sundress and what they determined to be a young girl's skull to the missing young girl last seen in a sundress. Even though Regina's case had, like I said, been the largest manhunt in Orlando at the time. So this skull and dress were stuck on a shelf in evidence for 10 months. While the skull and dress just sat in a box collecting dust, the Oviedo police chief was removed from his position due to his incompetence on multiple cases and was replaced by a former Orlando police officer. The new chief was looking through the evidence locker and he found the dress and the skull. He thankfully was able to connect the dots, realizing this could be Regina's remains. The skull had been out in the Florida sun for far too long to say 100% it belonged to Regina, but forensic determined the skull belonged to a girl between 5 and 7. Bob Armstrong came down to the station to identify the dress as belonging to Regina. He said, It took me about 10 seconds to see it was Regina's. I was hurt. 
it flashed back to the day I dropped her off at the babysitter's and she stepped out of my truck. In the ten months between the skull being found and the new police chief finally doing something with the evidence, the location the dress and skull were found had changed from bushland to a new housing development. Any other evidence that could have been there is completely gone. On August 2, 1988, a memorial service was held for Regina May. On this exact same day, a reporter named Meredith was somehow able to see and videotape Regina's skull. Meredith called her producer Carolyn to ask if she could run the footage of the skull. Carolyn thought it was a bad idea and told Meredith to ask the news director, Steve. At the meeting between them all, Carolyn said the footage is offensive to the public and Regina's family. One of the anchormen agreed. However, the news director, Steve, told them to show the footage. No one at the news station called the Armstrong family to ask their permission or even warn them, so they found out about this by watching the news that night. They had no idea that on TV that night they were going to see the skull of their six-year-old baby girl. Christina Armstrong, who was 12 at this time, ran from the room at the site, screaming, That cannot be my sister. The Armstrong family took Channel 2 News to court over this invasion of privacy and infliction of emotional distress. The news station decided to settle with the family instead of going to court and paid the Armstrongs $175,000. This case is actually written about in different law textbooks, and I read the details in a book called The Law of Public Communication, 11th edition. It has now been 37 years since Regina May Armstrong was abducted and murdered, and the case has grown cold. The rest of her body has never been found, and her killer is still on the loose. Police believe that at this time, the only way the case will be solved is if somebody who knows something comes forward. If you have any information on this case, even if it doesn't seem very important, please call Crimeline at 1-800-423-8477. Eight years after Regina was murdered, the state of Florida experienced the abduction of another young girl. Jennifer Odom. Jennifer Renee Odom was born August 25, 1980, to her mother Renee Converse. Her biological father didn't seem to really be in her life that much, but she was raised with a loving stepfather, Clark. Jennifer had a younger sister named Jessica. Jennifer and her family lived in the small farming town of St. Joseph in Florida. They lived on 15 acres down a long dirt driveway. In 1993, Jennifer was in seventh grade. She was a good student, often on honor roll, who loved math. She wanted to grow up to be a lawyer. Jennifer enjoyed playing the clarinet in her marching band and also loved to water ski, which she was really good at. She placed seventh for her age group in the country. She loved to be outside building forts, riding four-wheelers, swimming in the creek on the property, and shooting archery. Her mother described her as full of life. Jennifer was very close with her sister and her mother and loved her black-and-white Springer Spaniel named Gypsy. On Friday, February 19, 1993, Jennifer got ready for school like she did every other day. 
She was dressed in white jeans, a white turtleneck with a red sweater on top, a white jacket with hooters down the left sleeve in orange, finished with black laced-up boots. She grabbed her backpack, purse, and clarinet case and got in her mother's car. Renee drove Jennifer to the bus stop down the road in the morning so that they could spend some time together. Renee remembers this day that she and Jennifer talked about math. As the bus arrived, Jennifer got out of the car and onto the bus. Sitting in the back as she always did so she could see her mom driving behind the bus as she headed to school and waving goodbye as their path separated. After a normal day of school, Jennifer got back on the bus to head home. At 3 p.m., she got off at her stop. She was the only child to get off here. As the bus pulled away, she started walking the 200 yards to her driveway, waving goodbye to her friends. About 30 minutes later, Jessica got home. Since Jennifer always got home first, Jessica did not have a key to the house. When she tried the door that day, it was locked. Thinking Jennifer was pranking her, Jessica ran to her grandma's house next door to get the key. As she let herself into the house, she searched for her older sister. The house was dark and quiet. Jennifer was nowhere to be found. Jessica knew something was wrong, so she ran back to her grandma's house to tell her Jennifer was not home. This was very unlike Jennifer. She always came right home, knowing she had to let her sister in. She also never went anywhere without telling her parents first. Jessica called her mom at work from her grandma's house. Renee was instantly worried. She started to call Jennifer's friends, who all confirmed that Jennifer had gotten off the bus at her normal time. Renee's worries only grew as she called the Pasco County Sheriff's Office to report her 12-year-old daughter missing. Thankfully, the officers took her case seriously right away. They quickly found and interviewed the students who had seen Jennifer get off the bus. Multiple students said they saw a faded blue pickup truck on the side of the road that Jennifer lived on. Some of the children said it looked like the truck was slowly following Jennifer as she walked towards her driveway. Police quickly organized search parties with helicopters and search dogs. The search turned up nothing. That night, Jennifer's family went to the county fair, the one Jennifer had planned to go to that weekend, to hand out flyers with Jennifer's photo on them. By the next morning, hundreds of volunteers showed up to help with the search. Still, nothing was found. It seemed like Jennifer had just vanished. Since searching wasn't turning up anything, police turned their focus on finding the blue pickup truck the school kids had seen. All and any trucks matching the description were stopped by police. Sunday, two days after Jennifer was last seen, the search party grew even more. Horseback riders and ATVs came to cover more ground. Over 60 square miles were searched. Volunteers unable to search helped hand out food to the search parties. Not due to lack of effort, still no evidence of Jennifer was found. That Monday, officials requested the help from the FBI. I know a lot of times, small-town police don't like the FBI stepping in, so I'm really glad to hear that they just wanted to find Jennifer and put any ego they had aside. Also that Monday, school officials brought in counselors for students and staff to speak to, all who were shocked this could happen in their small community. 
local stores donated tissues to the school. On Wednesday, Jennifer's family held a press conference, pleading with their daughter's abductor to let her go home. Renee had told both of her girls that if a stranger ever approached them, to drop their things and run home. Since Jennifer's belongings had not been found, police and the family believed she might have known her abductor or didn't feel threatened by them for some reason. On Thursday, six days after Jennifer was last seen, her remains were found. Ten miles from her home, Jennifer was found naked in an abandoned orange grove. Medical examiners ruled her cause of death as blunt force trauma and believed she had been sexually assaulted. They believed she was killed in those woods shortly after being abducted. Tips continued to come in, but none led anywhere. After 16 months, the police were desperate. They reached out to psychic Nancy Meyer. She had worked with police in the past and had helped them, so they thought, why not? Nancy visited the abduction site with police. She believed that two men had asked Jennifer for directions and then abducted her. She said one of the men had wiry-looking arms. His arms were not powerful in the sense of muscle-building, but powerful in the sense of somebody who works and lifts or has lifted heavy things. Nancy also said that she believed the two men were mechanics and one was a smoker with a bad cough. At the abduction site, Nancy noticed a spot somebody had marked with a cross and flowers in honor of Jennifer. Nancy asked police if they had found a small jewelry box in that area that belonged to Jennifer. They had, but had not told Nancy about this. For the next few years, no new evidence or strong leads were found. The case seemed to be at a standstill. That is, until January 5, 1995. A couple looking for scrap metal found a backpack and a clarinet case. Inside the backpack was a textbook with Jennifer Odom written inside. The clarinet case had L.O. written on it. Jennifer had borrowed it from her cousin, and those were her initials. Jennifer's clothing still have not been found to this day. Fingerprints were taken from these items that did not match any of the family members. In 1998, a former Pasco County resident named Walter Ducharme was arrested and questioned regarding Jennifer's disappearance after his estranged wife told the police he was responsible for her death. However, she did not seem to be a reliable witness, and she changed her story every time she told it. She even once said that she was involved in Jennifer's death, but took that back right away. With no actual evidence against Walter, he was not charged and was released. In 2005, former New York detective George Lordgren started working for the sheriff's office, working on Jennifer's case. He became head of the department in 2014. He says he wants to bring the family a name so they can finally know what happened to their child. He and the rest of the department are still working towards finding answers for the family. This case has also stuck with the community. One of Jennifer's classmates is now a mother herself and says she has never and will never allow her two kids to ride the school bus after hearing what happened to her classmate. In 2007, Jennifer's case was featured on the Queen of Diamonds in a deck of cold case playing cards that were distributed within the Florida State prison system. 
hoping inmates might have some information. Police never gave up, but the case didn't make much progress for years until they found a new suspect in 2015. A man named Jeffrey Norman Crumb Jr. was arrested for robbery. When Crumb's DNA was taken, it matched DNA already in the system. DNA that had been collected from an assault on a 17-year-old girl in January of 1992, a year before Jennifer was abducted. There was one problem. Crumb would have been only 10 years old at the time of this assault. But detectives weren't going to give up so easily and took voluntary DNA from members in Crumb's family. The DNA was a perfect match for Crumb's father, Jeffrey Crumb Sr. While Crumb Sr. was not physically connected to Jennifer's case, the case his DNA was connected to was very similar to Jennifer's. The other girl was abducted after she got off the school bus and was walking down a long dirt road, just like Jennifer. The other girl was older than Jennifer, being 17, while Jennifer was only 12. She was sexually assaulted and physically beaten. Crumb Sr. had hit her on the head and left her for dead. When she did not come home on time, her family immediately searched for her. They found her barely clinging to life, 15 minutes from where Jennifer would be found the following year. This young girl's attack was so brutal, part of her brain had to be removed. Now, I keep saying this girl because her name was not released to the public, so probably because she was a minor and probably didn't want her sexual assault and attack out there for everybody. So that's the reason I'm not um, calling her by her name. Detectives are still working on investigating whether Crumb is responsible for Jennifer's murder. In a news article from July of 2022, so just last month, Detective Lloyd Grin, who is in charge of the investigation now, says they are still looking at other suspects and actually have one new one that they're investigating at this time. He's unable to give too many details right now because it is an active investigation. I am thankful that this family has police doing everything in their power to find answers for them. In this case, people acted quickly, which is very different from Regina Armstrong's case where the babysitter ignored Regina's sister's plea for help and where evidence was stored for months before being connected to the right case. Even though one case was handled much better than the other, they are still both unsolved after almost 30 years, and these families still need answers. So if you have any information, please contact the numbers that I will put in the description of this episode, as well as on my Instagram, Chilled to the Bone Podcast. Even if you think what you know isn't very important, if it's at all related to this case, or even if you're not sure but think it's possibly related, please reach out. It's better your tip is not needed rather than needed but not given. I hope I'm bringing these cases to some ears who have never heard them before. If you're from Florida, you probably have, but I'm in Washington and I had not heard of either. So I'm hoping that I can spread awareness and maybe, just maybe, this will reach the right person. If you want to check out any of my sources, as always, they'll be listed in the description below. If you enjoyed this case, please like and subscribe and give me a good rating. I would really, really appreciate that. 
Also follow me on Instagram at Chilled to the Bone Podcast. I update cases on there. I post memes and I love to hear from any of my listeners. So I'd love for you to reach out. I will talk to you all next Thursday and I hope you have a great week. All right. Bye, friends.